Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings and mercy of Allah be God. with you. Allahu Akbar. Our Father, who art in heaven, speravi, non confunda in eternum. In you, O Lord, I trust. May I never Shema be Israel, Adonai Loheinu, Adonai Achad. Walk cheerfully over the earth answering that of God in every one. You're listening to Kindred Spirits. Welcome to Kindred Spirits. I'm David Freudberg. Today, a look at the life and teachings of the late Howard Thurman. He's perhaps most widely remembered as the spiritual mentor of the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., Thurman was a black minister who preached of brotherhood and equality under one mystical God. He came to national prominence in the early 1950s when Life magazine profiled Thurman as one of America's 12 leading preachers. He was also the subject at that time of a cover story by the Atlantic Monthly. In 1953, Thurman was named dean to the chapel at Boston University, the first major college to appoint a black person to that role. A prolific speaker and writer, Thurman's talks were extensively recorded and are heard today at 100 Howard Thurman listening rooms around the United States. We'll begin with a brief excerpt from one of his meditations, recorded in 1962 at Boston University's Marsh Chapel. We don't know how to manage the imperfections of our own lives. How to manage the imperfections of our minds and our spirits, our thoughts, even our intents. Oh, God, we don't know how. We don't know how. We don't know how. Take all the cry of our anguish, all the sin and brokenness, 
of our faltering selves. To hold them with such sureness that we may learn of thee. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our striving cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress. And let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace, thy peace. A meditation by Reverend Howard Thurman, recorded some 20 years before his death in 1981. During the decade he spent as dean of Marsh Chapel at Boston University, Thurman formed a deep bond of friendship with a fellow dean at the university, George McKechnie, from the College of Allied Health Professions. Today, at age 77, George McKechnie fondly recollects his late companion, Howard Thurman. He was the same person in the pulpit where he was eloquent, as he was on the street where he was hurrying to get to the next appointment or to have a cup of coffee at, at, at the corner. Uh, he, he was not just preaching. He, he was sharing the very essence of his being and his tremendous concern for others. His, uh, his weapon was what he called a very dangerous and difficult one, the weapon of love. Now remember that Howard came up from uh, the, uh, the, the childhood experience of living in the racially segregated town of, uh, in Florida where he lived, Daytona Beach. Uh, where he knew just the black world, and his uh, grandmother had been a plantation slave. His grandmother was a tremendous influence upon him. Now, uh, from that beginning, and all the unfortunate, somewhat insidious experiences that he had uh, as a child growing up, he nevertheless found a way to transcend all that. There was this religious bent. He'd stood by a big oak tree in, in, in his yard down there in Daytona Beach, and he would go along the shore. And what he was sensing as a boy became very fundamental in, in all of his teaching and all of his preaching and all of his relationship to others, namely the unity of all life. Uh, to him, the, uh, the animals, the birds, uh, were all part of the scheme of life. 
out of that naturally comes breaking the divisiveness. I'm pronouncing it his way. Uh, to to break the barriers uh, that divide, divide at the animal level, but more particularly at the at the human uh, level. And so this man who was the victim of divisiveness, segregated uh, divisiveness as a child, uh, comes to have such a universal message. His formula was that in the presence of God there are neither male nor female, Catholic nor Protestant, Jew or whatever, 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 but rather the essence of the being stripped to its very essence and on, a, on, on an equality. Now, what he worked at was... Uh, through through his own discipline, disciplines of the spirit, he sometimes called it, what he worked at uh, was uh, to find the way of, uh, first of all, having a shield against any of the uh, of, of, of the arrows of uh, outrageous fortune, so that they didn't get through to him but kept the process of love, the, what he sometimes called uh, a, a very dangerous weapon, a difficult weapon, you see, but keeping that there so that uh, he, he could get through to you. Uh, it sometimes seems as if hate begets hate, love begets hate, you ought to give as good as you get, you know, and all of that sort of thing. But if you can get away from that, and uh, not let anybody get through to you to control your center, then in turn you may have the more positive uh, influence upon those with whom you associate whatever the original relationship is. The authentic one ought to be that you are you and I am I uh, and uh, we are equal. Before what always was uh, so real to him a sense of the presence, the presence, the presence of God, uh, which presence had nothing in to do, uh, let me say nothing much to do, uh, with what form it took, Catholic, Protestant, Jew, whatever else. Uh, he, he was aware, of course, that in order for him to thus be at home in any of these situations that were different, from the one with which he was familiar, he would have to at first be at home, as he would say, somewhere, in order to be at home everywhere. Uh, and, and his at home, religiously, of course, uh, was Christianity. Uh, but that was, that was to him uh, the point from which he would move to any other group that was worshiping God, any of the paths that led other people to God. I think I'm saying that accurately. George McKechnie, Dean Emeritus of Boston University's College of Allied Health Professions, recalling his longtime close friendship with the late Howard Thurman. We'll listen next to excerpts from one of, well, Thurman's sermons. It was delivered as the conclusion of a series of talks on the quest for God. Thurman's style is an intriguing blend of professorial philosopher and a southern black preacher, 
The tape we'll hear now was recorded in May 1962. Dr. Howard Thurman. It, it always strikes me as a kind of, uh, of impudence or impertinence or arrogance to, to, talk, to talk about God. The human spirit must have for its stability in its journey. It must have for its ground in the private and collective enterprise that we call life. Two fundamental levels of reassurance. And these two levels of reassurance have to do with what man senses as being ultimate the first is a, a sense of being totally encompassed, a, a feeling really for a climate that is all-encompassing, that gathers up within it everything that is so that the individual will feel himself held in a kind of reality that has as its dominant characteristic a structure of dependability which the mind interprets by the use of the term reality. But the experience, the experience of God in this dimension is, is always ahead of the interpretation that man may give of his experience. For you see, the experience of God even as this all-encompassing, almost impersonal aspect of reality. The experience of God is, is a living thing, but, but the thought about it, the, the interpretation, this is an, an invention of the mind. And the invention of the mind is always a little less than the experience and is always out of date as far as the experience is concerned because the experience keeps on experiencing while the invention has to take time to construct notion, concept, ideas, meanings, evaluate them, interpret them, and then categorize them and give them a label like theology or dogma or metaphysics or philosophy. And by the time the mind gets through with this necessitous process, the experience has moved on ahead of it. So that the experience is always attacking the invention 
but the mind feels that its security rests on holding to the invention. And that's why always in the history of the church, someone rises up out of the vitality of the living experience and moves in ways that become increasingly destructive of the invention. And you get a reformation or you get something else, something else, something else. Now, now that's the first thing. Now the second demand is that if I am to have a sense of being at home and really being secure emotionally. An impersonal, all-encompassing is not enough for me. And here my religious faith becomes my great tutor. And what does my faith teach me? In very simple words. And the second demand. Now, you see the first. Let me, the first is we're surrounded by almost an external structure of dependability so that I know that the, that the world isn't going to run off its whatever it's on, that, that the sun will not rise at um, 8 o'clock this morning and then tomorrow decide to rise at 3 in the afternoon. That, that I won't plant figs and then corn will come up. I mean, I, I, the world would run me crazy if there's no... So I've got to have this. This is a part of it. But this isn't enough. I, I, I want to feel that I'm not alone, you know. I want to feel that... Well, the writer of the book of Revelation expresses it. He has a lot of high-powered things to say about the new Jerusalem coming down out of the sky. and It's very dramatic and impersonal. It's a huge city descending. It's a glorious thing. But the heart dies. The heart dies with this. The heart has to feel that it's something personal. So the writer of Revelation says, God. God will wipe away the tears from their eyes. Nothing more personal than that. Have you ever wept and, and, and someone just got up and walked over to you and wiped the tear away? the most intimate, sacramental moment of private validation. And this is what religion insists that God does. So, my faith then teaches me three little things that are most important. That God is, that, that, that when I pray, when I pray, that, that I meet somebody
My words do not fall back dead. And I don't try to let the invention of my mind make the case for the validity of my experience, even though I'm always trying to do it. When I pray, I have a sense of communion that is as personal and private and intimate as the wiping of the tear from the eye. And then I know what Jesus says is right. And it teaches me also that, that God is, not, not merely is, this, this is not enough, but that he's, that he's close at hand, he's, he's a part of the, uh, of the very stuff of my experience. He's, he, is, he is in my tragedy, he's in my joy. He is in my moments of high glory and in my moments of profoundest despair. That when the night is so dark that I cannot see my hand before me, he is there. When the light is so bright that all things are blotted out, he is there. When I hate, when I love, when I sin, when I seek forgiveness, I can't shake him. He's there. Speak to him, thou, for he heareth. And spirit with spirit may meet. Closer is he than breathing, nearer than hands and feet. This is the second thing. And the third is that, that he's love, that, that, that when, when I love, However weak it may be, however faltering and inadequate and broken it may be, when I love in some mysterious way, all the world seems to fall into some kind of sense. And when, when I hate, the sun doesn't seem to be as bright, my feet drag, the world is not quite right. And when I love, it seems as if I'm right in the center of all the meaning there is. So that whatever else God is, This must be what he is most. Even when with my stupidity and hard-heartedness, I, I become an, an instrument of his wrath. 
even in his pain, he holds and redeems. And therefore, for love's sake then, I will do what no power in heaven or hell or on the earth could make me do if I didn't love. So God, as experience must be like this, I would not snare thee in a web of words. I would not try to reduce all the vast reaches of thy meaning in paltry symbols. I would but open myself to thee and let thy spirit invade me fill me until I do not know what is mine or thine. This would be my fulfillment. Oh my God. The Reverend Howard Thurman, speaking in May 1962 at Boston University's Marsh Chapel. Thurman was a profound religious presence for black Americans up until his passing in 1981. Many are his prominent disciples, from Martin Luther King Jr., Vernon Jordan, Jesse Jackson, who called Dr. Thurman our gallant leader but it would be wrong to reduce Thurman's significance to a racial level. He transcended that, according to his friend of nearly 30 years, George McKechnie. I will remember him as the as the man who was so whole. Um, we hear so much about the whole person in the health field that I've related to somewhat, we, we hear now about the holistic approach. And I get so alarmed when I, I read of a lecture that's going to be given on the holistic approach through, and then they name the particular modality, and they've already boxed it in. Now, that wasn't Howard. Howard's religion, springing, which was to him a pretty complete relation to his whole life, springing from, of course, his Christian background, uh, was, was whole in the sense that he thought of God as whole, and the God, as he would say, of all creatures. And I think this is the, the, the memory. Let me say it uh, in, in still another way. <clears throat> Howard Thurman spoke to the deepest needs of the human spirit, the deepest needs of the human spirit. His sermons were not just that which would tickle the ears. 
he was speaking always to the deepest needs of the human spirit. And so in the, in the coffee hour, people would, in the receiving line, say to him, how did you know of my particular need uh, and experience of this last week? He didn't, but he was speaking to the deepest needs of the human spirit. Now, because he spoke to the deepest needs of the human, human spirit, he did that effectively for his associates in his own time. But because of that deepest need and addressing the deepest need, he spoke to the human condition in all time, all times universal, embracing. You've been listening to Kindred Spirits with host David Freudberg, a production of Sound Documentaries. If you have comments or questions about Kindred Spirits, or if you'd like a free catalog listing cassette tapes of these programs, please write us at Kindred Spirits, P.O. Box 777, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02139. That's Kindred Spirits, P.O. Box 777, Cambridge, Mass, 02139. Thanks very much for listening, and may the spirit of unity bring you peace. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.